Well, Dan and Mike, thank you for leading us in that that time. What a beautiful reminder. Uh, God's word goes forth, and I have uh, the great privilege of opening up God's word with you this morning, trusting that it is going to do uh, the work um, that God promises that it will do, that it will meet us where we are at. And so on this glorious Sunday morning, thanks for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary. If you're gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for inviting us into your living room or wherever you happen to be viewing this. And so, friends, we are continuing in this Eastertide season. We are journeying together through the great book of uh, First Thessalonians in this series called Rise to continue like pressing into the reality that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is victorious, that he has conquered Satan, sin, and death, and that if you are here this morning by God's grace, if you are in Christ, it means you and I have a resurrection story. And it's not just something that happened in the past, though that is true, but it's continuing to happen like God is continuing to bring forth this, this fruitful ministry in and through us together as the church. And to help us even press into that more this morning, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And so here's what I want to encourage you uh, to do. Uh, I would love for you to have God's word open in front of you. So if you brought a Bible, please turn there. There are Bibles in the pews this morning. You can turn there or you can go to thisiscp.church or you can actually scan the QR code in the pew uh, and that'll bring up a menu where you can click sermon notes and the text will be there. There's space to be able to take notes this morning, but uh, if you would, uh, would you go ahead and as I read this, would you go ahead and stand uh, with me as I read First Thessalonians chapter two, verses one to twelve? Hear God's word. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you it was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal, it does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy And righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. So if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, in case you haven't, we are in this book, this letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in a city called Thessalonica, this, this metropolis of some 100,000 people that's an influential city in this area of Macedonia. But Paul, after helping start this church, there's a riot that takes place, and he is literally, him and his other, the other ministers are, are run out of town. 
And sometime later, he's inquiring because he cares deeply for them and uh, he inquires how they are and he gets some word. And so then he, he writes this particular letter and he has some things that he wants to share with them to help them know how to live in the midst of trials and difficulties. And as, as we live in this tension of like, all right, the tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. He is ascended. And what does it look like to live in this time where he hasn't come back and said everything right? And so the apostle Paul has much that he wants to say. But as I read this, here's one of the, the things this morning that I think we need to state at the outset. Because as I read those verses, as we read along, as you followed that, you can see in many ways, it's Paul describing, it almost feels like his resume. He's like, hey guys, like you remember, like I came into town and I did this and I did this and I wasn't like some of those traveling preachers, these charlatans that would come in and just try and make this show for, for money. He's like, he's really trying to communicate his heart about how he cares for them. And he's trying to, because what is assumed in this, and most scholars would say, is that word has come up that there are some people that are trying to discredit the ministry that, that Paul and Silvanus uh, and Timothy had had there in their midst. Like after having been gone for a while, there's some that are probably speaking lies like, hey, those guys didn't care anything for you. Like at first opportunity, they just bolted, man. They're gone. Nobody's heard from them. Can they really be trusted and so Paul feels compelled to, to speak and to remind them of all that God has done in and through them together as this community. And though he is far from them, his heart, it, I mean, his heart like beats for them. He's like, man, I love you guys. And so at one level, though, it can look like, okay, here's some description about those that are in maybe vocational ministry of like, Okay, how are we to act and behave and what does that actually look like? Maybe a question is, is this just a message for ministers, all right? And at one level, you could say, yes, absolutely. This message has been preaching to me all week to study this and to see the descriptions of the Apostle Paul's life and ministry and, and how he engaged. I mean, it's incredibly convicting, particularly in a time and a place, um, let me put this, I was reading up on, you know, just wanting to know like, hey, so like this line of work that I'm in, right? How is that perceived, all right? And if you went back a couple of decades and people were asked questions about, do you think pastors operate with like ethical integrity? Are they honest? About 70% of the people like in the mid 80s would have said, well, yeah, of course. Um, and that has plummeted to some like 37, 38%, all right? So public trust of clergy remains near all time low. There you go. Um, so I've got that on my business card. It's amazing, all right? Now, in that, as we, as we look at this, and here's the, the sad reality, that sadly makes sense. I mean, there are countless stories, right? It feels like almost every time we turn around, it's like, oh my goodness, like this hard, horrific thing has happened. Decisions by a pastor is supposed to be shepherding and caring for a group of people seemingly made, made choices that are not only, they're not honoring to God, they're not, only, they're not honoring to his church, and there, it creates all sorts of chaos and confusion. And perhaps you've been hurt by that in the past and there's wounds that, that you still carry. And so in many ways, yes, this is a, a message. It should be preached to ministers of the gospel to be able to say like, what is described here that this should shape us. This should inform how we are to seek to be as ministers of the gospel. 
And so, yes, like every sermon, it has to be preached to both the congregation, but also the person delivering the message. Like, we are all in desperate need of the gospel, the the ground at the foot of the cross, like it's level. We're all there. We're all in need. There's no JV and varsity when it comes to our Christian walk, right? Like, we are all on the same team. And with that then, so yes, it's something, on the one hand, you're like, hey, listen in as I preach to myself up here, right? So there could be that, and that is partly true, but also the scriptures tell us that pastors and leaders are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that there is a ministry that we all engage in, that if you are a member of the body of Christ, that you are also then commissioned as a minister, as a missionary, called to declare the love of God and called to love God and to to love neighbor, and how we do that collectively. And so sometimes that looks like being up behind a, a pulpit or a music stand and with a microphone and all of that. And sometimes it looks like us just faithfully living our lives in our neighborhoods or our workplaces or at our school. And so every single one of us needs to hear this. So yes, there are particular things for those in vocational ministry, But I think we miss the heart of this if we just say, oh, that's for somebody else. And so, yeah, it's true. Like at one level, even as you're thinking about like, hey, what should I be looking for in a a healthy church? Part of it is an examination, like who is the leadership and looking at that. And so there's things here to pay attention to. But it also is for all of us that profess the name of Christ to say, do these things describe me. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at, in kind of three sections, the Apostle Paul's ministry to a group of people in hardship, in difficulty, with a lot of things going on, in a cultural moment where people didn't always understand, like they weren't all like Team Jesus, and so very similar to where we find ourselves today. And so I want to look at this call to a courageous ministry that we first see in the opening verses, a call to a compassionate ministry. And then a call to a committed ministry. But if we'll begin here with this courageous ministry. Look back over verses 1 to 4. It says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, and the language there is, my brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. He's saying, you want to know how I know that? Because there's a church where there once wasn't. That the gospel has gone forth. And it's not perfect and there's issues, right? And there's no perfect church. But know this, like the gospel word has gone forth and God has birthed something new. There are resurrection stories in this city of Thessalonica where there weren't before. So praise God and it's all a miracle of God's grace. And then when we get to verse two, Paul says this, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul is, is retelling a bit of his story. He's saying, hey, you guys know, right? Like you remember where we were before we got to Thessalonica. Paul says, you know the story of Philippi and they would have known this. And thankfully this is recorded for us in Acts chapter 16. In the travel journey of Paul, all right, Acts 17 tells us the story of how the church in Thessalonica got started. But just prior to that, Paul had been in another influential city called Philippi. And there, the gospel was taking root. And man, it's fascinating. Go read this account in Acts 16 sometime this week. If you ever wonder, like, God's heart even for diversity in the church and the various people that he brings together, right? He's got this, there's this influential, like, businesswoman, all right, that he, that gets saved, all right? And then there's, like, a Roman jailer, and there's also, like, this demon-possessed person. I mean, like, there's all kinds of crazy things that, that are happening. 
They're like all there in one big happy community group. It's amazing, right? And so you have this picture of this church being formed. But Paul, there's persecution that takes place. Here are these words. This is towards the end of the account. Acts 16, 20 to 24 says this. And when they had brought them, that's Paul and the other ministers to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. Friends, just for a moment, imagine for a moment if there was such a work of the gospel that was happening in our time and in our place, not because we were intentionally trying to disturb the city. We want to be a blessing to the city. We want to seek the welfare of the city. But that there was this word that was out there that people didn't know how to categorize it. And so even out of frustration, maybe said, they're disturbing the peace. Like they're, they're disrupting our, our way of life. There's something that's going on here. Like, what if that was said here in Altamont Springs, in Winter Springs, in Maitland, in Winter Park, in Castleberry, wherever, right? Like, what if those things were said? Like, there's this group that's together. I don't know what's happening there. There's this, just, there's this disturbing of the city. It says, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in in attacking them. And the magistrates, they tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. So this is a next level of intensity and of persecution. This is not just a snide remark somebody made or somebody that made a provocative, not so nice comment on your Facebook feed, right? This is no, like the clothes are ripped off of you and you're about to be pummeled with rods. You're about to be beat. And then it continues in verse 23. It says, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and he fastened their feet in the stocks. And so when Paul mentions Philippi, right, that's just the shorthand way of saying, like, you guys know this. And yet, if you know how the story goes, right, like God causes it, like literally there's this disruption, there's this earthquake, there's the, the, the doors of the cells are all like busted open, right? Jailer ends up getting converted, right? Like there's all these amazing things that happen. Eventually, though, Paul does have to leave even after he and his fellow ministers are spared. Like where does that sort of courage come from? That's what Paul is addressing. Now, if that was me and that had happened, right, I certainly think I would be like, all right, that was crazy. And I would have my Philippi story and I would tell that for days. I'd tell that for years, like, I would just be on and on. Everybody, like, oh, yeah, I'm in this Philippi story, like, over and over again. But I don't think I'd be looking for another one. And yet, what does Paul do? Okay, well, we got kicked out of here. There's more cities in Macedonia. Let's just keep going. And so they make their way to Thessalonica, and a similar thing happens. The whole city's disturbed. There's a riot. He gets, you know, basically expelled from the city. And so when we hear this, and we read about this, and Paul talking about, like, this boldness, like, what brings that level of boldness, this courage, this courageous, bold ministry? Like, what actually fuels that? Because this isn't just for the Apostle Paul. There's this call for you and me as fellow, like, ministers of the gospel. People that have been sent out as, like, these agents of reconciliation. What does it look like to engage? And verse 4 gives us some amazing clarity here. It says this, But just as we have been approved by God, to be entrusted, to be a steward, he's saying. Like, we've been given the ultimate thing, the most prized possession, entrusted with the gospel. So we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. 
So let's look at those words for a moment that you see sort of highlighted there. Paul never got over the fact that he has been approved by God. Like the tense of that verb speaks to something that was, yes, in the past, but is also ongoing. That there is this approval, not because he earned it, but because God set his affections on Paul for no thing that Paul had done, for some reason, for God to show his grace and his mercy. He picked the one who once hated Jesus to be a minister of Jesus, to go and plant churches and to share about the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul, when he uses this, he says, we've been approved by God. Clearly, he couldn't do anything to approve himself. And friends, if you are here this morning in Christ, you know what fuels boldness, fuels courage? is realizing, oh, you have been approved by the God of the universe. If you are in Christ, it means you have a perfect, spotless, most amazing resume ever because you have the resume of Jesus. You literally get to go and showcase that and say, this is now true of me. Everything that's true of Jesus, we get to claim as our own. Not because we can perfectly live that out, but objectively, like when we've been justified by God, it means that this is now true. This is part of our resurrection story. And Paul never got over that. It's like, I'm approved by God. And so even if people reject me, which we'll talk about more in a moment, people misunderstand me. I face trials and difficulties. He's like the God of the universe is literally rejoicing over me, singing over me, singing a song over me in this moment, not because of anything that I've done, but I've been approved by him. Like the language there is of currency, of a coin that's been minted and knowing, is it the genuine article, right? Or is it a counterfeit? And if you're anything like me, something that can plague us, I know it does for me sometimes, it's just like, man, I feel, it's that imposter syndrome, like, I, I, I don't know, man. Like, I, I just can, can feel that because I know all the ways that I fail, right? I have a pretty clear idea, and then there's things I'm completely unaware of, but there are things I'm just like, oh, it's sort of the Paul, like, Romans 7 stuff. The things I want to do, I don't do those things. And the things I know I shouldn't do, well, those are the things that I do. And it can feel like, man, I, I'm a counterfeit. Like, do you feel that? Do you maybe carry in here th- this morning? Like, I don't know if I'm approved by God. I don't know if God loves me. You don't know all the things, And yet, God does, and Jesus knew it, and Jesus died for it, and you've been given his righteousness. There's this in the past but ongoing approval. You are not a counterfeit if you are in Christ. And it says you've been entrusted with the gospel. We get to be heralds of this. You know what it gives a boldness? Is that we get to go and declare something that is historically happened. It has objectively taken place that Jesus lived a sinless life, that Jesus died in our place, that Jesus rose again, that he ascended. Like all of those things. Paul's saying, what a gift. We've been entrusted with that. Paul says in other letters, we didn't come to you with like these wise or persuasive words. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have the best laid plans and arguments and be able to, to win every debate. The gospel frees you up to just be bold and courageous and say, I don't know. As Peter would speak about, like, here's here's the reason for the hope that I have. I know I've been loved by God. I can't explain everything. But I know I'm approved through nothing that I've done. Allow that to fuel. This is what fueled the apostle Paul. And then it says this, not to please man, but to please God. Oh, man, like if we could get this, 
to have this so grip us to realize, oh, our calling is not to please other people, to not be a people pleaser, but rather to seek to aim to please God. Another way to think about that or another variation sort of of that question is who do you fear? Do you fear people or do you fear God? Do you fear, do you have this healthy view, this increasing vision of the holiness, the majesty, the transcendence of God, or, and that that God has approved you and is with you, will never forsake you, no matter what happens, or do you tend to live in light of even all the mercy and the grace and all the things that God has done and yet quickly forget who you are and you only see circumstances? Like, do you, do you remember the, the story, like God liberates his people who are slaves in Egypt. And he's promised them, I'm gonna bring you to the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. It's like this amazing thing. And they're literally getting ready to go into the land. And so spies are sent to go into the land and say, hey, go check it out. Bring us back a report, right? Like give us the Yelp review. Like what's going on here? Like we wanna know. And they go in and it is everything that God has said and more. I mean, it is just like spectacular. And yet... It's a land that is occupied. And it means that there are people that need to be brought out of that, that there's going to be these battles, there's going to be hardship for a bit. And so some of the spies, a couple of them come back, and they're like, this is amazing. Like, look what God has given us. Let's rise up right now. Let's go. But the majority of the spies, they don't see God who led them out of Egypt through all the plagues, the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, all that seems to have been forgotten. And some of my worst moments, I'm like, ah, how could they do that? And then I'm reminded, oh, I do the same thing all the time, forgetting the past faithfulness of God and then just seeing what's in front of me, being fearful of circumstances or what other people think of me. And this is taking place. So here's how it's described in the book of Numbers. Numbers 13, 31 to 33, it says this, Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. I mean, look at the narrative already changing. It's not the land flowing with milk and honey, right? It's not the the promise, oh, this land will devour us. That is the lie that they begin to believe and they begin to propagate that lie and they begin to tell that lie because they're not fearing God, they're fearing man. And it says this, it is a land that devours and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, Anak, who come from the Nephilim and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Who do you fear? Do you have a healthy fear of God? That fuels a boldness, a courageous ministry. Or what is too often true of me, it's a grasshopper mentality. And this is not in a place of like, oh yeah, we should be humble and not think too highly of ourselves. That's not what this is getting at. It's I see everything and everyone and every circumstance, not from the vantage point of God has got this and he is with me and I've been approved and I've been trusted with the gospel It's like, I can't overcome this. They are big and they're mighty and they're strong. And those things all may be true. And yet, if you are in Christ, 
You are on the side of victory. You are on the side of the one who has conquered Satan's sin and death. Like what we know now should fuel this courageous ministry. And yet they get to that spot and they're like, we just seem like grasshoppers. Everything seems too big and overwhelming. Ed Welch in his great book, When People Are Big and God is Small, which I commend this book to you. We've talked about it over the years. He says this, fear in the biblical sense is a much broader word. It includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people, maybe sometimes just simply needing people. When that begins to happen, we've moved from the place of a healthy fear of God into a fear of man. And we miss out on what God has for us. Do we hear the promises like that Isaiah would write in Isaiah 33? He will be the sure foundation for your times. What a word that we need right now, that the Lord will be the sure foundation in the time and the place in which he has called us. Like you might think it's crazy, and it does seem crazy sometimes out there in the world right now, and your own life might feel crazy, and it's like, yeah, it could all be true, and yet God said, I want you in this time, in this place, for my purposes, for my glory. I'm gonna do something, and it will be so clear that he will be the one that'll get all the glory and all the credit, because we would never have scripted it this way. We get this reminder, he will be a sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. You want to find that? You want to unlock that? It starts with this fear. Or perhaps you're familiar, one more story. Again, one of my favorite Old Testament stories is the story of Daniel's friends, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they are told that they... Are in, they're in Babylonian captivity, and they're told that they have to bow down to this giant statue of the king, of King Nebuchadnezzar. If you know the story, they're like, nope, not going to do it, right? And anyone who doesn't bow down, who doesn't say that the, the king literally is like deified, like worship the king as God, if they, they refuse to do it, will be thrown into a fiery furnace. And they're given one last opportunity, all right? Talk about courage here. They're one last opportunity to recant, to change their tune, right? To just be like, nope, nope, sorry, no, we'll bow down. And they don't do it. Here's the account in Daniel 3. Talk about a fear of the Lord versus a fear of man. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king. They're not even talking like, well, you can tell the king this. Like, he's right there. They said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand oh, king. It's like, oh, snap. Like, really, like, this just happened, right? Like this throwdown, this confrontation. But I don't think that's the best part. It's what follows after that, they say in verse 18. But if not, even if we are put in there and we are literally incinerated, they're like, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We will not allow circumstances to dictate how we're going to respond. We've got a view of our God who is working his purposes, even though I'm sure they doubted it. They were literally feeling the heat from the fiery furnace. And the king, in a rage, instructs his servants to make the furnace even hotter. And they are thrown in there. And when he looks in, you remember the story? It's like, hey, how many did we put in there? Three. Why do I see four men walking around and nothing and no one is being burned up? Because the presence of God has come to be with them. 
we don't always have things turn out that way. There's no promises. All of the followers of Jesus, the disciples, the apostles, eventually gave their lives for the cause of Christ. But you know what fueled that, that courage, that boldness, is they were not living for man, but they were living for the Lord. And this understanding, you've been approved. You've got nothing to prove. You have been approved, and you cannot lose that. And so it leads then, this courageous ministry. Look with me. There's this compassionate ministry that we see in verses five to eight. And Paul says, so we never came to you. He's like, hey, just let me remind you, we didn't come with words of flattery, as you know, or with a pretext for greed. God is witness, right? Like, Paul's like, hey, God as my witness. You know how we showed up. It wasn't about that. And then in verse six, it says these words. It says, nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Related in some ways to that fear of man, fear of God, that line, we did not seek glory from people. Friends, as we think about this call, it's courageous ministry, but it's compassionate. Look, when I read this a few moments ago, do you remember Paul likens himself? He says, like, we were like, a mother like nursing a child, this closeness, this intimacy, this care. There's this compassionate love. There's this tenderness. So yes, there's a boldness, but there is a tenderness. There's a love. There's a compassion. And so he's calling and he's reminding them. He's saying all of this. He's like, we didn't see glory from people. Too often we are seeking glory from people. I need their approval. I need them to think well of me. I want these people, I want the pats on the back. I want the recognition. I want these things rather than getting the glory from the way, like, listen, like we get to glory in God and the fact that God has set his affection upon us. But too often we end up as people that are, we're trying to get glory from people. So we have to ask ourselves, like if we're gonna be the church God has called us to be, are we loving people? Are we using people? even in the name of Jesus' gospel ministry, right? I'm gonna serve the, these people, but part of it is like we want the recognition. Like we have this need to be needed. I was reading through the, this, this book in a, a, like a um, meeting for this like one-on-one discipleship meeting this past Thursday morning. I was struck. We're reading through this book called Keeping in Step with the Spirit by the late theologian J.I. Packer. And he speaks of something, he speaks of this paradox. Friends, if we wanna be people that love people well, there's a sense in which, weirdly, we have to detach ourselves from people and attach ourselves more fully to God so that, in the end, we can actually love people really, really well. Like, here, these words. This is the way Packer said it. I remember just being like, whoa, this is, this is brilliant. This is why he's J.I. Packer, right? And there's just this incredible insight. But what Paul is saying here, like, when he came with this compassionate ministry, it starts with a posture and a disposition that is not so enmeshed with people. It's like this healthy, yes, we're, we're detached a bit, not because we're aloof, we're standing off and unwilling to get involved, but we're so committed to God that it frees us up to actually love people. He says this, it is worth pausing for a moment to note the glorious paradox, namely that thoroughgoing detachment from all creatures to love the creator most of all makes possible. So follow his logic here, makes it possible. Through prayer and the spirit's power, a more thoroughgoing involvement with people 
and their needs and a heartier giving of oneself to help them than would have ever been possible otherwise. Do you hear that, right? A thoroughgoing detachment from all creatures, so from people. Now, that doesn't mean we just stand off and be like, well, somebody's gonna take care of it, right? I'm supposed to detach, pastor said it, right? Like, no, like what it's talking about here is this healthy view of like, oh, no, like I'm serving God, I'm consumed, but I want God to get his glory. And when that is a primary motivation, then I no longer need to be needed by people. I no longer need the approval of people. It frees me up to be courageous and compassionate and tender. And in the end, as he says, people end up being loved better. That's what was happening here. And then Paul says this, and he uses this really remarkable imagery. He says, for we, will, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. The things we know of the apostle Paul, right? I mean, he seems like this, this rough and tumble sort of guy, and certainly that is true, right? He's seemingly run out of town. He's beaten with rods. He's thrown in prison. He endures shipwrecks numerous times. People tried to stone him to death. I mean, all of these things that are happening. And yet to describe his heart of ministry toward a people, he speaks of something, obviously of which was never part of his life. He was never this nursing mother, right? But he's like, what image can I communicate to this tenderness? He says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. In that moment, those of you that have lived that, and you're dealing with the sleeplessness, and it can be this beautiful image, but it also be a lot of frustration. But there's this closeness, there's this tenderness. There's nothing that the child is ever doing at that point, being like, thanks, mom, you're the best, right? Like, I mean, it's just this pouring out and this giving. And Paul's like, that's how we seek to operate. What's so fascinating is the prophet Isaiah again says, hey, do you know that even the way God chooses to describe himself? There are times when God describes himself and the way, the imagery he uses is through these maternal motherly sort of descriptions. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Speaking of his tender, loving care, gentle among you. I wish I could say that I do this. I wish I could say that I even did this last night. Truth of the matter is, some of you, I, I was telling you that some of you that this morning, our 19-year-old ended up in the ER last night. And so thankfully, she's getting the care that, that she needs, hasn't been able to keep food down for multiple days and dehydrated and all, all these things, all these details. She's like, you really? This is in the sermon now? But anyway, um, go with me. Um, and she's at the ER. I don't think she's watching the live stream, but who knows, right? Um, and uh, But goes there. And then late last night, about 11 o'clock, um, they, they find out that like Heather and, and my daughter, Sydney, are going to need to spend the night. And so Heather calls and, and she actually texts over this list. Hey, can you bring these things down to the hospital like 20, 25 minutes, minutes away? Um, and literally, like, I'm just being a jerk on the phone. Like, I mean, I'm not like, maybe you would, like, she would know it because she's like, I'm just asking things. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm tired. I've got a message on compassionate love to preach in the next morning, right? Um, and, and I'm literally, like, she's there pouring herself out for our daughter. And I'm like, 11 o'clock at night, I got to run down to the hospital now? Like, my life, man, right? Like, literally, those were the thoughts, like the battle at the heart level, right? It is so easy to be consumed by self. And Paul's saying, we were like this gentle mother. And then he says this, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready. 
I love this. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, like praise God for that, entrusted with the gospel, the good news to share that. But then he says this, but also our own selves because you would become very dear to us. So there's no image here of Paul just rolling up to this particular city and just declaring a few words and then piecing out. Like there's this involvement. Yes, this sort of healthy detachment, but it led to this deep love and this deep affection in a way that in this beautiful tapestry, like God was weaving together a group of people. And so yes, he shares the gospel, but also he says, like we were delighted. It was our great joy, like to share with you our very selves. Think about that, the vulnerability, the time that it takes. Friends, this is what we were created for, but it is hard and it is difficult. We have to ask ourselves, like, are you and are we woven into community? If we're gonna be a community that blesses the broader community, it starts with being woven in here. Like, are you known? Are you pursuing other people? If you're like, no, man, like, I'm, I'm good, I got this. Okay, you can believe that lie for a moment, all right? But let me tell you this, the church needs you. They need you and what you bring woven into the community. And the more you press in, by God's grace, I think you'll realize, oh, I needed this as well. And so you think of this sort of image, are you woven in? We cannot be like the spool of thread that's just kind of off in the corner. It's like, no, like, let's open ourselves up to allow the God of the universe to, to weave us together. That is this image. Are we sharing our lives together? And it leads, we'll close with this. Lastly, this committed ministry, verses nine to 12. So there's courage, there's this compassion, there's this committed ministry. Paul says, for you remember, brothers, again, he's writing, saying, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. It's hard work. Paul's not trying to sugarcoat this. He's working as a tent maker to supplement, like some people are sending money to the ministry, but he's also working this, this job and then in the, using the other time to minister and to care for the folks that are there. There's this commitment that's happening. And I'm sure there were times it's exhausting, but he toils and he labors. There's no promise that like, this is gonna be easy, that it's not hard work. It's this, it's, listen, it's the distinction here. Don't hear this as like, you got to earn your approval, right? As Dallas Willard spoke of, you know, the gospel, it is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. So there is hard work to be done, but it's all fueled by the gospel. Not because you're earning anything, nothing to earn, like Jesus earned it all. But it frees us up for this labor and this toil. And he says this, and you are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers seeking to live in a countercultural and distinct way, living out the implications of the gospel. He didn't do this perfectly. We won't do this perfectly, but there's this, this call to be woven together and to encourage one another and to live in a way that he says is righteous and blameless and, and holy, where the world would look in and say, I, I can't actually make sense of what's going on here not because we're self-righteous and puffed up. We're not doing it for the glory of other people. But it's in this glad surrender of like, I want to follow you. Following you, Jesus, I believe is the best possible way to live. And then as Paul has brought in the maternal, the motherly imagery, he brings in the father here in verses 11 to 12. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So as Paul brings this 
portion of the letter, this section to a close, he's like, there's this commitment, a commitment that he has to exhort them, to encourage them. And then he's saying, I need you guys. He's saying like, I'm charging you to walk in a manner, to be committed to walking in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory to live for that. And so if you hear that, Maybe you're having a response like, yes, all right, I believe that. And you can get fired up and get motivated for a moment. But if it is done in the flesh, or you even trying to get a couple people around, you'd be like, let's do this. But it is devoid of a surrender to God. Saying, I need you to empower me. I cannot do this in my own strength. I am unable, right, to walk in a manner worthy of God. Like, how can I actually do this? Like, this call here, this courage, this compassion, this level of commitment, there is a very real sense where it should be doing its work of crushing us right now. Like, I cannot do that. I don't have it in me. Like, I'm busy. I am distracted. Like, I can't love people out in the world. I hardly love my family well right now. Like, that might be what you feel. And there's an honesty there. And in that place, friends, you and I are on the cusp of being right where God wants us to be. In this place of surrender, saying, yeah, you can't do it. So welcome. Will you trust in me? It's why Paul would write in one of his other letters to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, hear this. He reminds a group of people in a way that we need to be reminded this morning as we seek to live out this ministry. He says this, Paul writes, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. He's like, I'm not sufficient. And you're not sufficient. So welcome to the club. But he says this, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter. He's saying not of the the law, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And so friends, we are invited into that. We're not sufficient. Like part of today and coming in is this reminder. Yeah, I'm not This meal we're going to partake in in just a a few minutes from now is this reminder, this means of God's grace to say, oh, I'm not sufficient. But the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, that was sufficient. That makes me approve. That fuels me with courage. That gives me compassion the way that God has been compassionate with me. All of these things, friends, if we leave today and we think, all right, I've got a, a, a things, some boxes to check. I got to do this. We have missed the point of these verses. They are meant to showcase for us, not just how amazing Paul was. And we're like, yeah, way, way to go, Paul. No, no, no. Paul had an amazing savior. That's Jesus. If you're in Christ, you have an amazing savior. That's Jesus. I have an amazing savior. That's Jesus. The courage, the compassion, the commitment, all embodied by him. So hear these, rest in these as you think about the calling. Remember that Jesus is courageous for you. It tells us in Luke 9, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face, sometimes described as set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. What days awaited him? What awaited him in Jerusalem? Betrayal, mockery, beatings, ultimately death. The courage that it took to keep walking toward the will of God. He was courageous for you, friends. Jesus is compassionate toward you. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Paul is not the good shepherd, right? 
And you will likely have, if you've not experienced this already, like other leaders, other shepherds, right? Like, I know I've disappointed you. You're gonna have other people that disappoint you. Like, I'm not the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd and Jesus has compassion for his sheep. He's compassionate toward you. Do you feel harassed and helpless? Like, I can't do this. I don't know what's going on. He sees you, he knows you, he moves toward you, he cares deeply for you. Others may have let you down. Others that were supposed to care for you may have walked away. You might've been betrayed. You might be just completely in shock right now, but know this, the God of the universe, he sees you, he knows you, he moves toward you. He is a good and loving shepherd, a shepherd that laid down his life for you, which leads to the last thing. Jesus ultimately, he's committed to you. Looking to Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy of getting you back, the joy of having you part of his family, for that joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated in the place of victory at the right hand of the throne of God. He is courageous, friends for you. He is compassionate towards you, and he is committed to you. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So let me pray for us. Give us some time to respond. The worship team's going to come back up, and we're going to sing together, all right? As the song is going, if you've got elementary kids, you can go get them to bring them in so they can join for the rest of this service. I would ask you to be praying through these things. Lord, lead me in repentance Remind me of the gospel and think through, like, how can I like, rejoice and respond to this invitation and just rejoicing in all that Jesus is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text, for this word. Thank you for these reminders, Jesus. We thank you for your courage and your compassion and your commitment, your commitment to the will of God to drink the cup the wrath of God, so that it wouldn't be poured out on us, but instead you drank it all the way. So we give you praise for that. God, I pray that you would be honored through the, the worship of your people now as we respond in worship through song and through prayer and through participation in this meal together. And God, I pray that you would use us as the church to be a disruptive, redemptive influence in the communities in which you've placed us not because we need to prove anything, but would the approval that we have, would it fuel us to love and serve our neighbors and to bring glory to your name, God? That's what we want to see, more worship of you. So do it, God, for your glory and our joy and the good of our neighbors, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.